If you will turn with me to Philippians chapter 3, if you're using the Blue ESV Bible on page 981, Philippians chapter 3, this morning we are looking at verses 4 through 9 as we continue in our series through Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. The title of our sermon this morning is Hebrew of Hebrews, and our key words for our worshipers in training are Pharisee, gain, and loss. Now, all of us have undoubtedly had encounters with people who play a one-upsmanship game. That is, when you're, you're having a conversation with them, you're sharing a story, but no matter what you say, and no matter how incredible it is, no matter what the details of your story are, they're going to come right on your heels and say, oh yeah? Well, that's nothing. <laughs> And off they go with their much better story about one of their experiences that oftentimes has absolutely nothing to do with anything you just said. But you know, it's about them, so it must be told. Now hopefully we can all just be really honest and admit that Brian Regan is the best living stand-up comedian on the planet, without rival. If you've never heard of him, you're welcome. Brian Regan has a bit about how great it would be in one of those situations to be the guy that is able to sit back and listen to everyone else talk about how great they are and how wonderful their situation was. And no matter how hard someone else tries, you have the story, you have the experience in life that cannot be trumped. What would it be like to be the first guy who ever walked on the moon? Who can beat that story? No matter what anyone else says about anything, he can just calmly walk right up and say, you know, I walked on the moon. (laughs) Game over. (laughs) Now, none of us, as far as I know, have walked on the moon. So the next time you are about to say, oh yeah? Well, that's nothing. Just stop and remember this really important fact. Everything is not about you. And chances are, whatever you're about to say only makes you look selfish and prideful. Someone else has walked on the moon. You haven't. So just don't do it. We've all done that. We've all had the urge. We all need to check our own hearts. And in in what we see in our text this morning, we we continue to look at, at Paul writing to them, but he now comes with the ultimate I walked on the moon moment as he's confronting enemies of the gospel. These people we saw last week who who were he called dogs and evildoers and mutilators of the flesh, the Judaizers who were propagating this false gospel that said one must not only have faith in Christ to be saved but must also submit themselves to the Jewish laws of circumcision and all of the the festivals and rituals of the the synagogue and the temple. They believed they were some kind of super Jews, that they were better than all of the other Jews because they supposedly had faith in Christ, but they were better in that they submitted to the law of Moses. And because they had been circumcised, because they were holding to all the dietary restrictions and on down the line. So what we see this morning is a continuation of Paul confronting these false teachers. 
And we see how he addresses it head, head on and he, he knocks it all down to show what really matters. In essence, he says, you want to tell your story about how great and how holy and how righteous you are, measured up against the law of Moses? Well, go ahead. Because by comparison, I'm about to tell you that I've walked on the moon. I've done something and I am something far more significant. So let's read together and get the context. We're going to begin in chapter 1, but our focus this morning begins in chapter 4, excuse me, verse 1, and our focus begins, though, in verse 4. So chapter 3 of Philippians, beginning in verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Well, three main things for us to see in the text this morning. The first is from verses 4 through 6, and Paul shows us that your boast in the flesh will never measure up. I wanted to begin reading in verse 1 because we need to remember what Paul said first, and specifically what he said in verse 3. He ends uh, that first section by saying, put no confidence in the flesh. And yet, we get to verse 4, the very next thing he does, basically, is say, but if I was going to do that, here is what I would point to. And we can't miss the fact that he's doing all of this in a a very uh, sarcastic way, a biting tone. It would have been evident to the readers and hearers of Paul's letters as he lays out his credentials as a Hebrew of Hebrews. In essence, Paul is hypothetically boasting. He's challenging everyone who thinks they can beat him in comparison to everything based on the things of the flesh, the things that everyone would look at as sources of self-righteousness and having the, the right credibility to be able to stand on one's own merits. So to be clear, Paul is emphatically saying, do not boast in the flesh. Don't do this. And yet, he's laying out his credentials of the flesh to make a point. And we'll see what that point is as we press on. But above everyone else, 
Here's what he's saying. Above everyone else, above all that anyone else can say, I have everything every other Jew could want in terms of fleshly credentials. And we'll see what he says about those credentials. You think you have a claim to make in the flesh? That's nothing. Let me tell you about myself. What does his resume point to? What are the things that he lays out? Well, Paul has the strongest Jewish heritage that anyone could have. You want to boast in the flesh? He was circumcised on the eighth day to the exact specifications of Leviticus 12.3. He wasn't only a Jew, but he was of the tribe of Benjamin, one of Jacob's two favorite sons. The greatest of all Hebrew schooling is what Paul had. He was a Pharisee, which means he would have been trained at a very high level in the law. Paul had numerous zealous exploits to prove his faithfulness to the Jewish culture. He even persecuted the church. He was responsible for overseeing the death of hundreds, maybe even thousands of Christians. He wasn't just a casual Jew. He, was a, he, he wasn't even just a devout observer of Jewish life and custom. He was as Jewish as Jewish could be. His lifestyle had the complete commitment to live strictly, observing the code of the Pharisees. He himself was a Pharisee. He lived everything out in terms of the flesh, externally, blamelessly. And from the standpoint of first century Judaism, he had impeccable credentials. And he made it all sound as desirable as possible. What he's doing here is building up envy in the hearts of those he has already called dogs and evildoers and mutilators of the flesh. He wants as much sort of desire as possible in them to rise up so he can knock it down. If anyone at all had all the proper religious credentials to prove a favored status before God, as if that's how God worked, it was Paul far more than any of the Judaizers that we had talked about last week, and he addresses in verse 2. If there was someone to put on the Jewish religious pedestal, it was Paul. This is all very instructive for us because we all have an innate desire to be the best. No matter what it is, we really want to be the best. And we try to convince ourselves in certain areas of life that maybe we are. There are things we do that we know that we won't be the best in. We realize there will always be someone better. LeBron James will never be Michael Jordan. Controversy. Tiger Woods will never be Jack Nicholas. UNC will never be Duke. Chocolate will never be vanilla. Turkey will never be bacon. Get that out of your mouth, get that out of your mind. It's not possible. But there's a reality, there's always something or someone better that we won't be no matter how hard we try or no matter how hard our fans might say otherwise. World records are set and broken every four years at the Olympics. 
Sales numbers in businesses are always beat. Best-selling movies and albums and, and novels are always displaced by others in time. There will always be better, but we all have this tendency in our hearts to either not acknowledge that, or when we do, we at least have a thought that we're, we're good to go as long as I'm better than the other guy. And you may not think you do this, but consider what you do and, and how you do it and assess if there's even the, the slightest hint of wanting to prove yourself in it. For example, moms. What are you saying about yourself and your kids and how you want to be seen among all of your mom peers with the kinds of things that you you say out loud or you put on social media? Why do the mommy wars exist on the internet? It's that desire to be better in our own minds. And it often comes out in some of the most arrogant, self-aggrandizing ways that are so not so passive, passive-aggressive. Don't you just hate it when parents let their kids do the things that I'm implying I would never do with my kids because I'm such an amazing parent? I'm not picking on moms, though. Guys have different ways of doing the same thing. Usually it's with their stuff. We want to show off our stuff, how much we have, how expensive it is, how top of the line it is, how we've tweaked it, made it better. We want, some want people to see our pictures our current workout routine, whatever it is we're doing. Now, one of the things I admire about people as they get older, especially Christian, is that there seems to come a point where it just seems that they completely stop caring what anybody thinks about them. But I think that's a gift from God. It is a gift from God that we are not living our entire lives in a place where we're so concerned about being the best or being the better because we want to continue to live as though the flesh has something to offer us. It has a lot to do with this principle. Once you've lived enough life, you realize there's always someone, there's always something that has more clout or more influence or more money or better behaved children or better education or more opportunities, you name it. That is a lesson all of us learn no matter our station in life. And that's all that Paul is pointing to here. Why? Well, we get to why as he goes on, but I want to I think about this because it's important. Look, it's by God's design. It is by God's design that every time you attempt to keep up with the Joneses or to fake like you're able to keep up with the Joneses, that it's always frustrating and it's always futile. That is by God's design that your passive jabs at other people that, that you, you don't think have it together like you do backfire in your face. It's by God's design that nobody likes your picture on Instagram of you flexing your muscles in the mirror. There's a reason why stuff deteriorates. There's a reason why things disintegrate and why your skin sags and your style goes out of fashion before you know it and everything keeps breaking down. It is all from God saying to us, stop trying to do it. You can't do it. You won't do it. No matter how much you boast in the flesh, there is always better. And that's quite besides the point of the matter that the fact is that there will always be better because the best isn't just a more cleaned up version of yourself. The best is absolutely perfect and the perfect is only found in Christ. 
The perfect is the standard that only Jesus could keep because only Jesus was born of the Spirit of God in human form to take on flesh. The perfect is only found in Jesus Christ because only Jesus Christ lived a perfect life fulfilling the law of God to the T. Only Christ could obey God in all the ways that God called on humanity to obey. That's why Jesus' life in His humanity and fulfilling the law is so important for all of us because God's standard is perfection and none of us measure up no matter what we can boast in the flesh. And so if Jesus did not live a perfect life on our behalf, we fall far short because even the most vile, self-deluded sinner will tell you, I'm not perfect. And that's a problem because God's standard is that you be perfect because He is perfect. And so what must be done? It is only by faith in Christ that the perfect work that He has accomplished could be applied to my account. It is only by faith in Christ that I can claim His work on my behalf. His life on my behalf that I might live. Otherwise, the death He died for me is a death I must die myself, receiving on myself the full wrath and penalty reserved for all of my sin. But Jesus Christ did that for me. Jesus Christ did that for you. Because He and He alone is perfect, and so He and He alone is in the one in whom we must boast. And if you look at Jesus' life and ministry and all that is written about Him in the Bible, you should get the picture. You don't measure up, but He measured up for you. Will you trust that Christ has measured up for you? Will you give your life over to His everlasting care? That is what Christ calls all of us to. If you're not in Christ this morning, it's what He calls you to. That you would trust in Him and not yourself. That you would have faith in Him and not your works. That you would look to His perfection and stop trying to achieve it on your own. Well, the second thing Paul shows us this morning in verses 7 and 8 is that Christians value Christ above all that the world has to offer. The question we're left with about what Paul writes as as a hypothetical boast is, why? Why did Paul outline all of these things about himself immediately after saying, we shouldn't boast in the flesh? Well, the answer is in his follow-on statement. He says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus My Lord. Here's what he's doing. He's building the case to say, I have everything every one of these Judaizers could ever think to want. And you know what I think about it? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. He's illustrating that he will give it all up in exchange for what the world calls foolish. He will give it all up in exchange for knowing and being identified with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's one thing to say that you would, you would give up everything to follow Christ. It's another thing 
to list and sign over all of your most prized assets in order to do so. And by showing the incalculable value of all that he has and was willing to give up, Paul raises the value. He raises the bar of what it means to know Christ. He says, you want to know how committed to Christ I am, how important He is to me? You see all of these things I've just listed out, all of these trophies on my wall, all of these things that I know the Judaizers, those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, all of these things I know that they want and wish that they had, I have them all and I'm writing off these things for the sake of Christ. The house has been built and I'm going to light the match to burn it down. These are the things that would have given Paul respect anywhere he went in Israel. It would give him respect, it would give him honor, it would give him influence in the culture, yet he's willing to disavow it all in exchange for knowing the Lord Jesus. So what does that kind of faithfulness look like for us? As far as I know, all of us in here this morning are Gentiles, so even if ethnic Jewishness meant something significant today, and it does not, We don't have any claim to any of it, so there's nothing there to set aside. But let's think about how this principle applies to us more broadly. Perhaps a faithfulness to Christ in your life looks like losing a reputation that you've worked really hard to secure. But you did so maybe through means that were sinful or unjust. But now as a believer, you're, you're convicted about that and you have a desire to do things in righteousness. Can you imagine what would happen to 99% of the people in Washington, D.C. if a revival swept through that place? Imagine how reputations would change and, and all of a sudden, when people were convicted about telling the truth and not manipulating a system for personal gain, what that would look like. Maybe for you, there are certain things you enjoy doing. But in doing them, you know you're far more prone to sin, and so you you have to measure the cost. Is Christ more valuable? Or remember when Jesus said, "When when we follow Him, there will be friends, there will be family members who simply decide they cannot bear to have a relationship with us any longer because of it. Is Christ more valuable? I've met many Christians in Nigeria who've converted from Islam. And in doing so, their their families turned away from them. Many instances, their families attempted to kill them and they had to flee under the cover of darkness to go into hiding. Is Christ more valuable? Is knowing Christ more valuable to you than even maintaining your very life? It was to Paul. And it's certainly what he's calling us to. Now, there are many scholarly debates about how strong an emphasis Paul is placing on uh, this here when he says, I count everything as loss or I count everything as rubbish. Various scholars suggest a very strong emphasis whereby Paul is using a word that would be something akin to a curse word referring to bodily waste if you get... My point, there are a lot of ideas about what he's saying and how strongly he's emphasizing that. But how that plays out is not necessarily so important. As long as we understand the emphasis, the thrust of what he's saying, the point 
that can be agreed upon is that Paul is very concerned to highlight the utmost importance of a Christian's willingness to give up everything that the world has to offer for the sake of knowing Christ. No job, no hobby, no amount of money, no status, no relationship compares to knowing and loving and trusting and enjoying Jesus Christ as your Savior. True believers in Christ value Christ above all the world has to offer, and in doing so, are able to truly experience freedom as God has intended it. It is not until we have submitted to a willingness to give everything for Christ's sake that we gain joy, that we gain freedom, that we gain abundant life. What in your life Do you have that in a moment of honesty, if you were really, really honest with yourself about your own heart, what would you really struggle to let go of if there was a reason to choose between that thing and Christ? Remember the parable of the rich young ruler? A young man with many riches came to the Lord Jesus and said, Rabbi, what must I do in order to follow you? To inherit eternal life is what he was asking. And Jesus asked him about the law, and the rich young ruler outlined what he believed he had fulfilled in terms of the second table of the law with regard to loving one's neighbor. And Jesus said, well, I've got one more thing for you to do. You to go sell all that you have and then collect the proceeds and give them to the poor and then come and follow me. You say you love your neighbor, show me that you truly love your neighbor. And the rich young ruler turned around and he walked away. What did Jesus do? When the rich young ruler walked away, what did Jesus do? Nothing. Jesus did nothing. Why? Because the rich young ruler knew who his God was when he was pressed to identify it, and Jesus wasn't him. His heart was clear. He had no intentions of giving up everything to follow Christ. Just the easy things that he didn't value above all else. What are you chasing after that you would be unwilling to let go of. Here's the thing about that parable that I don't think we often get or talk about. God's judgment on those who have idols that they are unwilling to recognize and that they are willingly chasing after without heeding His call to turn is that He will just let them walk away. He's not going to chase you down. He's not going to plead and beg. God's judgment is that He gives you exactly what you want without bothering you. And that should bother you. That's Paul's argument in Romans, that God would actually give us what we want, should bother us, because that's His judgment. It is only by God's grace that we don't have what we think we want because our flesh and our hearts are so wicked. Can you think of anything more frightening if you think of the things you've desired in your heart that are so set so far away from God and His righteousness that He would actually let you follow after them. Christ must be our all in all lest we get what our hearts left to themselves truly desire. 
And Paul shows us how we get there. Verse 9, our final point this morning. A righteous standing before God is found only in Christ. Look again at verse 9. He says, To be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul had this massive list of credentials. He had everything every one of the Judaizers could have ever wanted. It was a life of privilege. It was a life of honor. It was a life of respect. It was probably a life of vast quantities of wealth. All because he was a Jew of high pedigree but concludes that none of it matters. Why? Because the only standing anyone has before God that matters, the only standing that anyone has before God in order to be found acceptable in His sight is a standing upon the righteousness of Christ and not on our own. It isn't in law-keeping that we're found righteous. No amount of law-keeping will justify us before God. Not one of us could even uphold God's law to His standard for a single second that we might be justified. And that's not just us, as if we're some, we're some breed of extra sinful people. That was the same for Abraham and Isaac and David and Solomon and Matthew and Peter and even the Apostle Paul. None is righteous, no, not one. But have you ever meditated on these words that we sing? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust in the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. What are you depending on to get you through the grave? Your sweet frame? Yes, I know most of us here are Christians. We would be right and it would be good for all of us to say, I'm depending on Jesus. Yes, and amen. And if you're in Christ, the final verdict from God is that indeed your justification is based on your faith in Christ alone. Nothing more, nothing less. When you are God's child, you are now and forever will be. He will not love you less tomorrow than He does today, nor will He love you more in 10,000 years than He did yesterday. But just like we all have things we need to be careful we not hold on to tightly because we might value them over Christ, we all likewise have things we assume might make us a little bit more righteous than others. And man, if God loves them, surely He loves me. Maybe you've been blessed in some way, in some way that you hold up and use to measure yourself against others. You may be smarter You may have a more robust grasp on theology than all your friends or every member of your church. You aren't justified by your vast theological knowledge. You may not do what you think is wasting your time, frivolous things, watching movies, having hobbies. You didn't go to recess when you were a kid because you just don't play. God is serious, life is serious, so I have to be serious. But your level of constant seriousness is not righteousness. The number of hours you spend in prayer and studying your Bible, 
the number of Christian conferences you go to, the number of letters after your name, the amount of money in your bank account, the level of success you enjoy in your career, even if your career is working in the kingdom and laboring for the glory of God, does not a righteous standing provide? Brothers and sisters, these things aren't bad things. Many of them are good, right, necessary things. But may we never confuse what those things are. They are not a means to have a righteousness of our own that comes from the law. So what is it for you? Where does it come from? How do you compare yourself to others in order to try and prove to yourself that you're standing before God is right? What do you suppose makes you better than that person sitting next to you in that blue chair right now? Paul tells us to keep that in mind, to remember that, and every time it comes up in our hearts, to abandon it on the heap of rubbish that we might live more fully and faithfully upon the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ alone. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Here's the thing. All of us are legal-hearted. All of us are works-oriented. And we struggle day by day to believe that we're really and truly saved by faith alone. Surely there must be something more. We have the mindset of getting a phone call about winning a Caribbean cruise on a carnival cruise ship. It sounds too good to be true. Tell me what's in the fine print. And we think about the gospel in that way. What more? Yes, faith, but there's got to be something else. Tell me what's in the fine print. Thanks be to God, there is no fine print. We won't show up on the day of judgment, and the Lord tells us, by the way, we forgot to mention, you didn't quite reach the minimum threshold. You didn't quite do enough good works. We see back in 2012, you went to a homeless shelter and fed some people, but you didn't return after that. You said you would, but you never did. Sorry, if you would have gone two more times, you would have made it. There is no fine print. Faith in Christ, and that is all. And listen, the things we do may be good, they may be biblical, they may be God-honoring, they may be gospel-centered, but any dependence on our works, any trust in the flesh, any confidence in the world's provisions will only lead to death. I love these few simple verses because we learn so much and we're reminded so much of what we, we hold to so firmly. Paul exposes his fundamental values in life. On one side stands everything the world has to offer, including the privilege of learned and disciplined Judaism. On the other side stands Jesus Christ and the righteousness that comes from God by faith. And Paul insists that there is no contest. Jesus and the righteousness from God that Jesus secures are incomparably better to anything else. What are your fundamental values? Does Jesus stand on a side completely different in your mind than the things of this world? Look to Christ and Christ alone that you might know life abundantly Because it's on Christ, the solid rock alone, that we can stand before God. All other ground is sinking sand.
all other ground that you might boast in is sinking sand.